like, it wasn't a, really a dip kiss, was it? I just think it's hilarious no. to imagine that. <laughs> it felt like that, though. Like, like it wasn't... <laughs> I don't know. The one where after he announced that he had enlisted, that didn't strike me off guard because like what you said, he may not ever see her again. But like when Jim just came in or his mom just came into the house and then they kissed there, the way that he kissed there there caught me a little off guard. And I thought for a little second about that. I think there might be something in this signaling here where it's like his dad thinks that he's basically a waste of space and he's a mama's boy. That's maybe what I'm taking away from those kinds of moments. A mismatch pot of minds, bodies, and societies who try to find shreds of meaning and dignity when there's little to be found. It's meant to highlight the differences between what we would prefer war to be versus what it actually is. The landscapes of the two films are seen in one shot as grotesque and in another are seen as approaching a level of beauty to which some would equate with the intended morale and morality of war. These films are not absent of all humanity. The big parade in 1917 may be cautious of war, but even in the most brutal moments to watch, they are not anti-individual because there are layers of head-swelling psychology added to them. I would dare to question if they're even anti-war. century where we discuss history, culture, and politics in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Today we're going to talk about King Vidor's The Big Parade of 1925, the first combat movie. And we're also looking at Sam Mendes' 1917, which of course came out last year. In this recording from the beginning of the summer, Frank, Anna, and Rachel will be talking about realism, sentimentality, special effects technology, as always the First World War, and inevitably the long march to our doom. I'll start by speaking directly to the robot archaeologists of the 22nd century. When I explained that in 1925 in the United States for someone to go see a movie, they would basically be wandering into the theater midway through. You'd have several different features put together or several different films put together. You'd have maybe a couple of newsreels, maybe a couple of comedy shorts, and then you'd have a feature film. For example, the big parade on the long end at two and a half hours. I was thinking about that. You always think of like the short Charlie Chaplin kind of stuff. That would have been extremely long for people back then. Yes, yes. But the thing is that people would also dip in and dip out. So you'd buy your ticket and you'd go in. You might come in halfway through the movie. So you could conceivably imagine a viewer coming in, say, just before the big combat sequence in the big parade. And you could see how that would actually make perfect sense, narratively speaking. And how if you came in at the beginning, that would also make sense, narratively speaking, but it would feel like a different movie. And sometimes people would watch it the whole way around until they got to where they had come in. 
and this is stupidly enough where we get the expression this is where i came in <laughs> it was originally something that people specifically said when they were going to movie theaters oh this is where i came in <laughs> okay. that's lame <laughs> it's lame <laughs> i think it's interesting but you can think of movie theaters in this era, in, in the silent era, as being a place where people would spend time. And keep in mind, most of the movies would not be as good as something like The Big Parade. I mean, like today, most movies would not be all that great. <laughs> Maybe more were not that great. It's hard for us to tell. The other interesting thing about this era of film production is they were literally printing the film stock on celluloid. And celluloid is one of the most flammable substances we've ever used to save data on. So most of the movies that were produced in this era are lost films that we actually have no idea what they were except from what people wrote about them or remembered from them. We have whole lists of movies that we know existed that we don't know what they looked like. The other thing is that movies in this era were kind of a garbage medium. Think about early TV. You know, there's a lot of early TV that nobody saved because it was just broadcast, you know, and nobody was like, we better copy this down on film or whatever. We do have the really great films of the era, though. So stuff like The Big Parade and I suppose, for better or worse, stuff like Birth of a Nation, which we could call it a great film if we want to. I don't know. We'll get to argue about that later. <laughs> well, it could be great in other senses it doesn't mean great like wow this teaches a great message that we should all follow because fuck that shit um, it's certainly culturally significant yes the other thing that we can think about of film culture in this time is that it was probably a more talkative culture it was probably you know especially with silent film where you're primarily reading rather than listening you'd have you know somebody playing live music maybe people would be chatting over maybe people bring their food maybe if they didn't like the movie they'd throw food at the screen it's sort of like the old theater days and maybe this reminds us a little bit of the futurists too i talked with anna a little bit about viewing cultures in italy in the 60s and 70s and my sense is that it changed slower in other countries than it did in the United States. Usually the turning point in American movie-going culture is claimed to be Psycho in 1960, where Hitchcock produces a movie with, I'll just say, a strange opening section, and he doesn't want people yeah. to come in midway through. Yeah. So he tells everybody that you will not be allowed to enter the movie late. That's a big deal. And so then we get the culture of going and watching the movie end to end, of paying attention to the movie, of caring about the movie, because presumably it's supposed to be good rather than just like, well, I'm sitting here. And of course, then by 2020, we have an American viewing culture where we go to the movie theater to sit it's not really even a social event anymore because not too many people go to movie theaters except maybe for the big blockbusters. So you might even buy your ticket online, you go in and then, I mean, I saw 1917 in the theater twice and neither time were there more than say a dozen people in the theater. And I've been frequently to movies where like there were five people in the theater. I guess the way that the culture has shifted much more towards streaming. And then now, of course, in the era of full calamity, we now have and will have over the summer, presumably a lot more direct to streaming releases on the presumption that people don't want to go into a theater where they could potentially contract a lethal virus. The cost of these things is a big deal, too. Right. So, you know how cheap it is to have a streaming service, the presumption that you're already going to have a streaming service, the cost of a, of a theater ticket versus back in the teens or the 20s where there is no such thing as television. It's basically you've got books. 
eventually you've got radio, but you don't really have real radio in the 20s yet even. I think just like the rudiments of it, you have penny arcades and you have movies and they were, would be a, an affordable entertainment, something that you could do instead of going to a baseball game. Because also you didn't have football, which is kind of a cool thing to imagine a world without football. So I, I really like silent movies, though they obviously have their downsides. I mean, the thing that makes a silent movie interesting is it's so obvious that it is something from another world. And that is not only that it is something from the long, long past when people were consuming movies in a very different way and had, one might say, had a different understanding of what a movie was, or to put it differently, were in the process of trying to figure out what movies were going to be. And as both directors and viewers going through that process. But also, I think that if you would have watched this movie or any silent movie in this era, it would be hard not to also think that this is a representation of something coming out of another world. Because it is kind of a world without sound, right? It is a world where things are cut together in different ways than life is. And again, keep in mind with an audience trying to learn what movies would be, the difference between real life and movies would be much more obvious for those people, right? The sort of discontinuities, the cuts, the shifts in perspective, the time shifts, those things would have probably been more jarring to an audience of that era than they are to us. That's not to say they didn't understand them, just to say that it would have more obviously felt like something out of another world. Even the set design in this era, I find really fascinating. Think of those in the, the early sequence, those large rooms with tall, tall ceilings, huge, high, high doors, right? To mm -hmm. represent how Jim's family is so wealthy and so powerful and so successful. There is a certain extent to which I think that that kind of stuff is legitimately attempting to represent the kind of wealth that we see in the upper echelons of the bourgeoisie before the stock market crash of 1929. But there are also elements to that which are obviously stagey, where it's obviously an intensification of something that is meant to be taken as realistic or maybe meant even to be taken as symbolic. I had this thought in my head as I'm watching this because a lot of the characters, they're acting these things out with big high-powered Klieg lights, just like blasting them in the face for the, their images to take on the film effectively. They have white pancake makeup and sometimes black lipstick. So it's like everybody in silent movies is a goth. <laughs> I like and, that description. And everybody in silent movies feels everything as intensely as possible. Where it is so funny that I'm falling over and my sides hurt. When it is sad, it is like I am tearing my hair out and screaming sad. They're just doing a play. Exactly. Because, because in a play, you have to do things bigger for the people in the back, but you also have to do things bigger in the film so that people can understand what you're doing without saying anything. Exactly. So a lot of this is carried over from theatrical productions and, and, and very much feels like stage acting and particularly stage acting of the sort of melodramas of the period, which is to say pre-modernist style acting where you're not trying to do that sort of understated, look at me be so realistic type acting. And then it's even intensified further because they're trying to act with their faces, with their bodies, and not with their voices. And I'd even go so far as to say that in this movie, to my seeing of it, 
in this movie, The Big Parade, these are for the era actually quite subdued, actually quite restrained and much more naturalistic performances. And I think that in, in like earlier stuff, you see like a lot more outrageous, what we would call overacting today, but that was considered normal. And that said, I think that John Gilbert impresses me and I would even say impresses me more the more times I see this movie. Like the kinds of things that are going on on his face in these mm-hmm. close-ups where he's showing these nuances of emotion are to my mind really, really groundbreaking for the time. He's not overdoing it. He so easily could be. And sometimes to us it probably looks like he is by our taste currently, but I think he's actually delivering a really sophisticated performance. Especially with, what's his face? The lankier dude. Slim. I was catching that. I was like, oh, he's refreshing. He's semi-acting normal, but that's also a presentism view. So, yeah. Well, and like you said, I mean, compared to the things at the time, you know, I'm sure he's above everyone else. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily know that for a fact. I'm not exactly an expert in silent movies, but I have seen enough to say that this is what I would consider a more subdued and more naturalistic performance. And again, it's kind of hard for anybody to be an expert in silent films, as I said, because a lot of what you would like to look at, you can't see. I would say when we see Birth of a Nation, we'll see a more extreme acting in a number of different ways. Anyway, so what did you think about watching this? Have you have you seen a lot of silent movies before? Was this a weird experience? I imagine it actually worked quite well on double speed. Oh yeah, <laughs> when I start, tried to watch it at like regular speed, and I was like, oh my gosh! Like even at double speed, the intro was long. The only thing was the music, but otherwise it seems like it literally seemed slow down. My experience was a bit different than Rachel's. My first silent movie, actually, but I took it upon myself to add commentary and just rip on them the whole time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It it made my mom laugh. I liked it. I have to say, though, and I'm sure that we're going to get into this, the whole opening section before they get to the front line was not what I was expecting. So, yeah. And we'll talk uh, about that. I don't suppose I have any way of knowing for sure, but my suspicion is that people watching movies in the 20s would have had an experience not unlike your own. Like, why not talk in the movie? Like, it's not like it's a sacred thing, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. if you're not listening for people talking to you. And obviously there are still plenty of movie-going cultures these days where people talk. What about the opening section did you think was weird? Well, there's a couple of points here. I'll go in order. Why does he kiss his mother on the mouth? That was a big no. Wait, are we going to get into that discussion tonight? (laughs) Are we getting into that? I'm not sure I even noticed that. Did Um, did he like dip kiss her? (laughs) Like he like held her behind the head like. "Mm." And her leg popped up and she just sort of melted into his arms. Not quite that extreme, but it was definitely noticeable. And I was like. No, Rachel, it wasn't even gentlemanly. It it wasn't even like a quick peck. It was longer than three seconds. And three seconds is the standard. Well, a lot of high ranking royal families used to have incest. So. Sorry. Not everything yeah, is about it's incest. Nice. It's the 20s. <laughs> I love when they're having fun or not having fun shoveling the crap. Yeah. That was, that was a, a great good. part. I love how Millisand was getting hit on by like four guys at the same time. And then she's like, uh-uh. Like, I like no. how, she, how defiant she is. <laughs> defiant, yeah. strong. 
she's a vision of a peasant woman that I think we see a lot in this era, even to include Soviet propaganda, which keep in mind, this is the era of the early Soviet Union. But, you know, in, in wartime in general, right, the First World War, like in the Second World War, you have a need for even propaganda to promote the notion of the strong woman. And they do. I think Millisand is a better dream or memory or, you know what, however you want to label it, than even some of the products that the industries put out today, you know, in just that regard. Obviously, there's flaws to everything. The reason why I, to my taste, consider Vidor to be probably the greatest silent era auteur director because he produces these melodramas of the common man being swallowed by industrial culture obviously in The Big Parade. He does it in a number of other movies as well, right? And it works well for the genre. It works well for the format because without any sound and without, therefore, any dialogue, you, you can get like little scraps of dialogue through the intertitles. The audience has to do so much more work filling in the blanks of what kind of a person this character is by reading their features, their behavior, etc. The, the effect is of these characters kind of being to a certain extent blank slates that we then project our own feelings about like what kind of person they should be onto them. And so I think he does a really good job of then rolling with that and being like, yeah, there's not like a whole lot to this guy, but there is still some dignity there to be found. So with a character like Jim, again, at the beginning, it's like, there's not really a whole lot to this guy. He's this sort of idle rich, like who knows what he's going to do with his life. He goes off to war, but then we go through this whole experience with him. And by the time we get to the end, he feels like a fully fledged character. And part of that's because we've been filling in details ourselves living through this experience with him. And similarly with Slim, who in many movies would be a bit part, right? it appears as though he's going to be the comic relief. And then he ends up being this iconic war hero almost by yeah. the time that, that we get to the combat sequence. And similarly with Bull, which again, it could just be another bit part, but it ends up being this like crucial group. And here we're getting that sort of mixed class group that you have in a lot of war narratives because that's the way the war operates, especially in a massive draft army. Not yet to the sort of, ethnic group that we get more definitively in the Second World War, but with sort of hints of that. This is the shot that immediately follows the end of the big combat action sequence. So what are you seeing described for people who are listening out there in radio land? I see an ambulance in black and white. The thing that strikes me most though, is that I see a red and white cross in color. Yeah. The only scrap of color in That's the whole obviously silent black and white movie is there is a red cross in this shot. Did you notice it when you watched it? Oh, yeah. I was okay. like, wait a minute. I thought this was in black and white. Well, a lot of people are under the impression that color film didn't exist until the 50s or maybe the 40s. And that's not true. It's just that it wasn't a very practical system. You know, if it's, if it's expensive, they didn't do stuff like that. And now, obviously, as you learned watching this black and white silent movie, it was common to do tints, right? Mm -hmm. So they'd tint the film yellow to show that it was late in the day. And they'd tint the film blue to show that it's, this Night. is nighttime. Yeah. Yeah. They could do color. And there was actually full color photography already in the First World War that had been developed by the Lumiere brothers in France. Kind of beautiful that their name literally means light. I've seen like photos of sort of yellow and green 
French fields just at the beginning of the First World War. But it wasn't a process that was, you know, very well known or commonly used, and it would have been expensive comparatively. So almost all the photos that you see are going to be black and white. There are some silent films where they do just one reel in color. There is one color reel in the Lon Chaney version of The Phantom of the Opera. So the whole movie is a silent black and white movie, and then there's one reel in color. And, and at first when I saw this, like my, my thought was like, somebody made a mistake. Somebody in the restoration like added a red cross for no good reason. But no, that's, that doesn't make any sense. Nobody would do that. This must be what the original film was. They chose to do a red cross in this shot. And they might have even hand colored it. That would be the cheapest way to do it. So you'd see like postcards with like, you know, it'd be a black and white photo and then somebody go back and pink color on it. It looks kind of fake, but they'd have hand colorization like that. And that's most likely what we're seeing here. If you look at it closely, it looks like almost too solidly defined to be real. Like it had to be painted on, you know? You can even kind of, there's a little bit translucent almost. You can see through it. Actually, it might have just been like a white block on the truck and then they painted the red cross over it on the frame. The more you look at it, the faker it looks. Yeah, it, it looks really choppy. There's a difference between the bottom of the white block versus the top of the white block. And then the side Yeah, it's the like grainy at the top. Yeah. And we see a lot of other weird sorts of visual effects here. What would have been like special effects for the era? I actually thought that scene was really cool where they had all the explosions and things like that. Yeah. Just the, I think the blue tint actually adds to what they were going for, the drama of it. Yeah. In a lot of these, you'll see double exposures or like basically two shots combined on the same shot especially if there's like an explosion really close to somebody i think the house gets hit by a shell and it's and it's suddenly really obvious that it's two different shots put together because otherwise somebody'd be like clocked with a big chunk of house and it's probably it's probably a model one of the shots but i mean this is for its era there we go there we go look at that look at that yeah, ch- oh, big chunk yeah. of house see that big wow. chunk of house that lands on that pile of people and it's like oh that's a second that's two shots that are like superimposed over each other instead of blasting a huge chunk of house, it was probably a model. And you can see then the closer you look, you start to see weird size distortions where sometimes the people are much bigger than the landscape. What size are these guns supposed to be? Wait a minute. The chunks of dirt are the wrong size compared to the size of the people. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You can see the, the early special effects. And this is quite good. This is like cutting edge, awesome special effects for its era. But you can see what they're doing is they're combining actual full-scale action shots with models and with other separate sequences. And it gives it this sort of eerie, like in some of those long shots, you see that the soldiers look like almost ghostly figures, you know, because they're sort of superimposed on the landscape. The more I watch it, the more I, I am amazed by it because you have to keep reminding yourself that it's literally like people in a room with scissors and rolls of film <laughs> cutting it together. <laughs> right, right. And that's what I had to keep telling myself. This is in the 20s. Yeah. like Yeah, 1925, yeah. Wow, pretty impressive. It impresses me more the more times I watch it, quite honestly. I think that, especially because it comes an hour and 40 minutes into this very stilted melodrama, it's easy to by then be so worn down that you forget that it actually has a really fantastic combat sequence. I will often go back to this movie and like just watch that that middle part, like from basically uh, what's what's called the Bella Wood sequence where they're they're wandering through the forest 
and you don't even realize it at first because you don't you're not hearing the sounds of gunshots right but people in the background just start falling and more and more start falling until you realize oh they're under sniper fire right now and from that all the way through this part right here where now he's laying in the trench with this dead german soldier and it very obviously looks like a grave it's not a trench sorry it's a shell hole and it very obviously looks like a grave a metaphor that certainly would not be lost on anyone who fought in the war. What do we mean when we say that a movie is realistic? Is the big parade a kind of realism? Is 1917 a kind of realism? Is Novacento a kind of realism? I think that all three of those statements are true, but I think that they are different kinds of realism for different kinds of audiences. But what does it even mean? I think it's the basis of the plot, not necessarily the acting or the filming styles. Imagine if 1917 was uh, shot as a silent movie and the big parade was shot like it was 1917. They would both, I think, would both be considered realistic, but it all depends on the film style and acting styles on how realistic it is with the plot, because the plot is the most important part. So you think that it's, it's all about the, the plot, really? Yeah. What do you think, Anna? Well, realistic isn't a static definition. What's realistic changes over time. As the time period changes, as all the other factors surrounding the film and the film's intent changes. So I think you're right in saying that all of these are realistic because they're realistic to their intended purpose or how they wanted it to be portrayed in the minds of the viewer. Okay. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you then find these to be realistic or is it the kind of thing where I do. can you even judge it if it's if you're not that intended viewer? Maybe you can't. And maybe I'm not the person to judge. I'm sure I'm not. To me, they are realistic and they still do hold up as realistic. But you have to realize they're not coming from the same plane of reality. Each one of them is split. Mm -hmm. I feel like on some level, we can't judge silent films too harshly since they were still figuring out what film was and they yeah. didn't quite know how to address audiences and stuff because it's a mixture of radios and plays and like all that stuff. And just with anything that people create, you have to figure out what to do and how it applies to other people. So I feel like films that we're still trying to figure out what films were, we shouldn't judge too harshly, but we can still judge to some degree yeah i guess that we can we can talk about it in in two different ways here the introductory section of the big parade versus the combat sequence of the big parade which did we find to be realistic or not realistic or more realistic or less realistic or whatever i think there's an interesting effect here like we mentioned with 1900, maybe they were trying to do something kind of like that where, well, the people actually going into war remember the war differently than even someone like Millisand or the people who sent that person off to war or even the town of people who sent the soldiers off to war. They all remember the same event differently. So maybe that's their way of breaking it up. Yeah. I wonder to what extent the opening section is intended to be realistic, honestly. I'm especially thinking about this very first scene where it's like the whistle blows and then everybody comes off the work sites and it's like, oh, now we're going to war, you know? 
it seems to me to be like very, very symbolic, very conceptual. Okay, well, here you have your working class guy and here you have your wise guy bartender and here you have this rich kind of useless dude who it turns out we're going to figure, actually there's more to him, but he never would have figured that out if he didn't nearly die. And have maybe the only two people who ever cared about die in the process too. There's a lesson there, (laughs) maybe not the one that we thought we'd get. That opening section seems fully conceptual to me. And then it gets progressively more realistic. I didn't even think too hard about the way that he kissed his mom. I see something like trying to express on film the notion of you're saying goodbye to somebody and you know it might be the last time you ever see them. Yeah, and that's the realistic thing. It was just a personal shock to me. Well, I mean, maybe it's like realistic in terms of how it feels, but I don't know. I'm not saying that people are like actually dip kissing their moms. No, (laughs) yeah, no. And again, the implication is that he needs to go off to war to prove himself. Once he tells his dad that he's enlisted, his dad's like, oh my God, you are so cool. I used to think that you were worthless. (laughs) And there's, of course, what I'm sure King Vidor considered to be a great irony, though in some ways totally unexpected here, that part of him enlisting is to impress this woman, Justin, who he is engaged to. But then the result of him going off to war is he falls in love with Melisande. That's uh, not surprising. It's not surprising. I, th- I feel like maybe people who watched, who w- were watching this movie, they were like, what a twist. But, <laughs> but no, we've, we've seen enough wars and heard enough stories about wars since then to know that actually this is like what happens most of the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe not all parts of that, but often at least one of those parts. What did you think of the intertitles? I, this is, it sounds like a stupid question, but there are intertitles and there are intertitles. Like some I thought of it was kind of funny. Like, guns, men, men, guns. <laughs> yeah. The, also, the ones where they're both trying to speak the other's language, it just made me cringe so much, even though oh, it's God. accurate. There is something about this era that is, I want to say, deranged. <laughs> And I had mentioned this offhand when I was talking about the Treaty of Versailles and Paris. I was talking basically about Italy feeling like it got a raw deal in 1919. And I said that part of it was racism, which might have stuck out as like, wait a minute, but like Italians are white. Uh, You'd have to go back to 1919 and ask an Anglo-American dude so are Italians white? And uh, maybe he'd say yes and maybe he'd say no. Are the Irish white? Exactly. Same type of question. And the story of immigrants in America, uh, at least the story of European immigrants in America, has been in large part a process of people progressively identifying with white culture, in some ways the detriment of solidarity amongst immigrant groups. Even to the extent that we see it now uh, with certain types of Asian immigrants, they may not be like technically considered white, but culturally they are more likely to be perceived as white-ish, if you will. And sometimes they they identify in ways like that as well. This is a long-winded way of saying that, yeah, no kidding, uh, Woodrow Wilson was not willing to, you know, even open up the topic of if maybe Ireland would be free. No, he did not have great respect for the Italian delegation and felt like they were a waste of his time. And we'll see uh, all the cool stuff that Woodrow Wilson has to say about the Civil War when we watch Birth of a Nation. You know, Wilson was racist in ways that were completely normal for 
an Anglo-American dude or an English dude or any number of other European folks of his era. The degree of anti-ethnic sentiment in this era is like so deep that it's really on the level of being racism. There's a moment where he's just like trying to banter with Melisande and he holds up a frog and he said, oh, he, he, frog, you frog. And it's like, you just sort of tarzan over an ethnic <laughs> slur. Because you thought that she would think it was funny and you are so stuck in your own wasp world that it didn't occur to you that maybe she wouldn't think that it was cool for you to come on to her like that. You see the same bit go down in the character of Bull, mm-hmm. right? Who's, of course, the underworld character. He's the sort of disreputable one. And I think it's, it's great that they show that, like, well, even a guy who's presumably scumbag bartender, you know, he can be a war hero too, right? Which is, uh, you know, an important theme that we get in war literature, generally starting from the First World War forward, we get these sort of more potentially proletarian stories. In Company K is a great example of that, right? We get people from all different class backgrounds. You know, people who are upstanding people could be worthless cowards in war. People who are, you know, shitheads can be really great at killing people. (laughs) But Bull, in the roll call, has to uh, get a letter. His name is announced as Michael Aloysius O'Hara. It says here in the IMDb cast that he's Tom O'Brien. I thought it was Michael Aloysius O'Hara was the one that I got in looking at my intertitles. So I don't know if, oh no, oh my goodness. It's even more racist than I thought. Of course. Oh no. No, it's Tom O'Brien. He got typecast as the Mick. They cast an Irish guy and they're like, okay, so you're going to play an Irish guy. What's your name? Tom O'Brien. Well, that's not quite Irish enough. Tom O'Brien is not quite Irish enough. Let's make him Michael Aloysius O'Hara. Hera. And we'll, we'll have it be a whole joke about his like ridiculous Mick-ass name that they have to read and then he's embarrassed and this is why this scumbag goes as bull. You see, I'm playing it up, obviously. I guess I'm half Irish and I get to do that. But the point being is that like, th- this is also a joke about making ethnic slurs more or less. And it's a joke uh, made by a culture that it doesn't even occur to them that maybe people wouldn't like this, you know? Maybe there's a reason that he goes by Bull because that sounds cooler to him than his name, which is so obviously Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, can you make it more obvious? I don't think yeah. you can. <laughs> What things in these films do you think are worth talking about that we haven't yet covered? I think more like how would, like the actual, like if it would happen today, how that would happen. I like to judge things harshly so much to the point where I don't enjoy them as much, which is unfortunate, especially with, I'm going to say Melisandre. I feel like she would have tried to coerce some guy, probably Jim first, because he was a funny guy, because she was lonely and there were no young suitors around. So I feel like with the psychological effects of feeling so depleted and lonely in this time of war that she would have sought out somebody sooner based on typical stereotypes, which are based on small truths. You think that she's behaving in a stereotypical fashion? An unstereotypical way for a war movie, because usually the women are like toying with the males, like, ooh, I'm not going to date you, but I actually will. Like that kind of stuff. Not date, but... Do you think that she's looking for love or do you think that she's looking for a good time? Good time. Definitely good time. Because everybody's so stressed about everything and psychologically. But also I feel like with 1917, they would have focused a little bit more on loved ones because that's what keeps a lot of people going. 
I mean, I definitely know that there was a focus on it, but like in 1917, you mean like with them looking at the photographs that they carry around yeah. with them and stuff like that? Yeah. I wish I put a, a larger emphasis on that because I know that's what gets a lot of people through, especially what was supposed to be the war to end wars. In Company K, it's really obvious and it is yeah. historically accurate to the extent that William March himself was on the ground and saw it happen, where you have the U.S. soldiers and Marines coming in to France in 1918 and the French people are in a different world than the Americans. Like the American soldiers are like, yeah, let's get it on. Come on. We're going to beat the Germans. And in the process, maybe you guys got some wine. You guys, you know, want to shack up, whatnot. And the women are dressed in black because everybody's dead. And they're like, you just came to a funeral. Except for, you know, then there were also brothels. We see that all in Company K play out in this way where there's this huge clash between the expectations of one group of people and the expectations of the other. And and that's what comes from being beaten down with four years of the worst war that anybody had ever seen. And that to me is something that feels really not realistic about Melisande and her family and the whole town in the big parade. You are right that she should be out there looking for a good time, right? But also, I think that maybe her parents and all the people in the town should be way more nihilistic by now. Instead, they're like standing around the fire and reading letters and like rattling literal sabers, imagining the, the romantic glories of the French army. I would die for a shot by shot, totally accurate historical film. I don't care if it would be over eight hours. I will be there for it. Can we go um, together? Yeah, let's, let's do a streaming party. <laughs> All of us. I mean, I, I don't mean, know if such a thing is even possible. I'm sure that people have tried such hyper-realist experiments, but it's like the dream of the book that gets adapted perfectly. Did you think that 1917 was realistic? I think it became more realistic as you watched on because you didn't get the breaks because it was a single shot. So it seemed more and more real because of that. It seems a little far-fetched, even though I know it's a true story. It's based. It's on not a true, a true story, story, though. It's not. I mean, that's sort of like the, thing, the things that people say. Oh, it's a true story, you know. But wasn't it? Well, okay. Please. What, what Mendes says is that his grandfather told stories about his experience in the war as a runner. And that this story that he wrote is based on the kinds of things that he heard his dad say. So you have to imagine a literal hundred year telephone game that his grandfather is telling stories which might or might not be true to his grandchildren. He could just be making things up and saying they're true stories. He could be telling stories that he heard from other soldiers. It could be anything. And then Sam Mendes is using bits and pieces of that to put something together. So sometimes directors will do this just as a way of sort of heightening the audience's sense of authenticity. It's mm-hmm. another it's another cultural cue that tells us a little bit about what the viewership is inclined to believe is realistic. Well, if you tell me that it's based on a true story, that we you know think of that as meaningful in some way. You'll note that the big parade doesn't say based on a true story anywhere, right? And yet a number of the writers on that script were combat veterans. So it says something perhaps about that era that you didn't have to do that kind of an assertion, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe it was just that King Vidor wasn't interested in, in doing that kind of an assertion. And again, inevitably, when we get back to D.W. Griffith, who's making Birth of a Nation 10 years before this movie 
Griffith does all this like weird prestige stuff with the intertitles that's like, I am so serious about making this movie. He like signs his intertitles, G.W. Griffith, you know? What do you uh, think? What do you think, Anna? Did 1917 seem realistic? I have to stick with what I said before, yes, in different ways. And I think if you're going to ask me which ways that they're different, I don't know if I'll have an answer for you because I think it's more nuanced than that. It's kind of one of those things where you just know it when you see it. I think it's interesting that people, I believe particularly younger people, will say that 1917 feels more realistic because of that continuous shot. But other people, people who are more obsessive perhaps about details, will find the unrealistic aspects of the movie to be things which are created from the use of the continuous shot. So for instance, the geography doesn't make sense because things are just too close together. You couldn't walk from behind the rearmost reserve trench all the way out to no man's land and then across to the German frontline trenches mm-hmm. in like, I think they do it in like 20 minutes or a half hour. Mm-hmm. That, that would be impossible. It would probably take a day at best. Mm-hmm. And I was consciously thinking about that, like, um, no. But again, the question is whether it's realistic, not whether it's real. So as moviegoers, we're totally willing to accept the concept that when we watch movies, they take place in a sort of compressed time scale, right? So what we're watching in 1917 might be described as realistic if we grant that there is a sort of compression in the geography and there's a sort of compression in the timeline, right? But what we have to do is we have to accept then that the continuous shot is a fictive concept. It's part of the narrative feel. It's not a literal representation of a walking tour of the Western Front because we're just not moving through enough trench. There are hundreds of miles of trench missing. But the point is nobody would want to watch that movie, right? There are all kinds of weird chronological problems in the movie, like the milk that's still fresh and in a bucket for whatever reason. I don't know. It's like actually in the video game of 1917, you just needed to collect the milk to give to the baby. (laughs) That's the real explanation for that. Right. And when you're comparing the two side by side, I definitely think we come from a different perspective because we've been studying this I would assume more than most viewers. We catch things that irk us more in 1917 in comparison to the big parade. And maybe in that respect, it's less realistic. But I'd like to believe that it's kind of what a runner would experience. But again, I've only been studying this since September. So what can I say? I do like the feel of it. I'm a big fan of both of these movies, no doubt, Mm -hmm. you know. This is just sort of a way of picking the scab off of like, what do we mean when we say realism? You know, I do get what you mean, Anna, when you, when you say that it is expressing a feeling of what it would be like to be a runner. Like, I got to get somewhere. I got to go to the next place. I got to go to the next place. How am I going to get past this? You know, it would take forever for Blake to die from that abdominal knife wound. It wouldn't have fit the timeline. Realistically, Schofield would have had to be like, sorry, dude. You're going to be in pain for a while here. I got to go deliver this message. I'll tell your brother that you saved my life. And in a certain way, that's even more painful, but that's not what we want to have in a war movie, that the Mm -hmm. guy has to actually abandon his buddy to die a horrible, painful death. But what he does in that scene that touches me more than anything else is the exact opposite of what we see in the big parade. And it's another example of, well, what do we mean when we say that something's realistic? Blake asks Schofield, am I dying? And deadpan, British as fuck, 
swallowing every emotion in his face, Schofield says, yes, I think you are. Just nothing. Where in the big parade, as Slim is dying, he's moaning and calling out to Jim and to Bull. And Jim and Bull is screaming back at him. And the officers are yelling at them, shut up, shut up, you know, because they don't want their position to be given away. And then Jim like goes berserk and comes out of the trench and they're just like running into no man's land with no concern whatsoever for their safety. And Bull gets killed. In the one, we take realism to be the complete dampening of all emotion. This is what we expect a soldier to do, right? And in the other, we take realism to be, I am feeling things more than ever because I've got adrenaline pumping. I'm about to die. My buddy just died. This is a stupid, insane war, you know? It's just that both of those scenes are so, so incredibly powerful to me. And yet they're exactly the opposite scene. So which one is more realistic? I think that they're both realistic. And I would even go so far as to say, I think they're both realistic in like the literal sense. I mean, you hear a lot about people moaning in pain and being able to hear them from the trenches or a cover position like a shell hole. I mean, obviously you hear a lot about like, you know, don't yell, don't put your head over the the parapet, stuff like that. And yeah, you hear all the way going back to uh, the Iliad when a soldier's buddy gets killed then he goes berserk and just, you know, without any concern for himself, throws himself into the fight in a way that he hadn't previously. So every element in that sequence in No Man's Land in the big parade does strike me as realistic, even in the literal sense. And also, I can see a guy like Schofield, who's been through, quite honestly, a lot more than Jim has been through, and see that for some people that defense mechanism is you can't show any emotion at all. That's what you have to do. I do tire of these scenes in movies and in books where they're always reassuring the guy like, oh, no, you'll be okay. Oh, no, you'll be okay. Because, yeah, I'm sure that people have to say that a lot to get through it. But also, I'm sure there are plenty of times when people are like, I'm going to be real with you. You're not, you're done, you know. So to see that moment on screen, I think was really important. I do think that they're both realistic, even in the literal sense, except for the, you know, problems with time and stuff like that, right? But more importantly, they feel realistic. And that's why we say that they're realistic and not real. Did either of you see They Shall Not Grow Old, by the way? No. I must have, I must have told you about it at some point, though, right? No. So Peter no. Jackson took all this Imperial War Museum footage and fixed it, repaired problems with it, got it running at the correct speed, colorized it, then got lip readers to come in and figure out what people were saying. And then they recorded voiceovers to like basically cut together the weirdest ass and most accurate possible documentary film of the First World War that you could produce. I had my mind blown by this movie. I, I watched it in 3D. <laughs> a 3D color sound First World War actual footage documentary film. And of course was that film in history and you know very well spoken film prof gets up there to explain to all of us at length how of course we all know that this is a fictitious construct, you know. Yes, I understand that what you are saying is literally true. But come on, buddy. We can say this about every single documentary ever made, you know? All I want to do is look through a window into the past. I know that it's not an undistorted window I'm looking through. But I'm looking, you know? I can see it. (laughs) 
but my desire for that is then i guess not unlike your desire rachel for like the perfect actual historical drama in real time as things would feel or or the perfect adaptation I appreciate the gradual progression in these movies from the starting normalcy to the middle of the, the word they use is Gehenna, but I'll use hell, to finally a mismatched pot of minds, bodies, and societies who try to find shreds of meaning and dignity when there's little to be found. I appreciate how these movies deliberately play against expectations of war while making the concessions to the average viewer, not saying that I'm not the average viewer. I'm probably closer to the average viewer. For example, in the big parade, the intertitles are so outrageously and stupidly patriotic at the beginning that I think it's meant to highlight the differences between what we would prefer war to be versus what it actually is. It's interesting how the characters interact with the landscape in both of these films. The landscapes of the two films are seen in one shot as grotesque and in another are seen as approaching a level of beauty to which some would equate with the intended morale and morality of war. As in the discussion of Company K, these films are not absent of all humanity. The Big Parade in 1917 may be cautious of war, but even in the most brutal moments to watch, they're not anti-individual because of the layers of head-swirling psychology added to them. I would dare to question if they're even anti-war. I don't know. I think that some people are actually really angry at a movie like 1917 because it's not anti-war enough. I think that 1917 does something that is interestingly the opposite of what most First World War movies tend to do. Most First World War movies tend to follow a pattern more like the big parade, where it starts from what you called an absurdly patriotic perspective, and then moving through the crucible of war, the soldiers come to the conclusion that none of this means anything and this is just a waste mm -hmm. of life. But then coming out of it, they have to find some meaning in it. For Jim, that meaning is I may have lost my leg, but I have survived and I have found the love of my life. In a certain sense, you get that the resolution of the problem that Schofield and a lot of other soldiers have with that discontinuity between the civilian world and the life within the war, where Jim presumably can't go back to Justin after this. Jim can't really even go back to his parents. They're not really going to understand what he's been through. Mm -hmm. But Melisande, because she lived in a country that was invaded, because she lived through this war herself, she can understand it. And then they're going to have that bond in a way that he can't have with anybody else. That to me seems really true in a very deep way where I can see the writers coming through and having something to say about the experience of war that is actually fairly nuanced for something that's really just, I want to say an archetypal mo war movie, but it's really like the archetypal war movie, right? <laughs> but there's, there's a way that they're using the obligatory melodramatic romance genre arc to actually say something meaningful. In 1917, because it's coming from a perspective that I want to call a 21st century perspective. I see that in the point of view, in the use of what people are increasingly just calling a third-person shooter video game 
perspective, right? <laughs> that like this is a war movie made for your generation, for a generation of people who are familiar with this as like a typical viewpoint to follow someone through a landscape when they're wielding a gun, right? So it's coming from a very 21st century perspective, just in the way that the point of view and the shot is set up. It's also coming from a 21st century perspective with the presumption that this war is useless and actually like the big mistake, the big trap is that we're dumb enough to keep attacking. So it comes with maybe not an entirely anti-war viewpoint, but a skepticism of the capacity of battle to do any good, that that is like the automatic viewpoint at the beginning of it. Though we do get this obligatory interplay between skull Field and Blake, where Blake is the more romantic one, the more idealistic one, and Schofield is, is the hardened veteran who is more cynical. We go through the whole trajectory of the film and ultimately the conclusion that we come to at the end when we meet Norbert Bandersnatch and he... Uh, <laughs> He tells us that like you called off the attack for today, but obviously there's going to be another attack. And then what that means is it's actually in a long-winded way brought us back around to the way that the high command actually thought about attacking during the war, perhaps without meaning to, perhaps I don't know why. Sam Mendes has actually made the case for the war being fought the way it was fought, even after a hundred years of us talking about how stupid that plan was as like a way, like you, you're not going to get through. You just stop attacking, just hold your ground and chill out. You know, yeah. like there were literal mutinies in the French army for all of 1917 based on this. It's not that we're not willing to fight in the war, but we'll stay here with the machine guns. Let them come and die if they want. We're not going to do that. Poison gas was a synecdoche that epitomized the horror of the wasteland. The transition to this definitively modern combat environment is illustrated by King Vidor's The Big Parade, the first great American film drama reflecting on the war. After marching through a sniper-infested forest, the protagonists see the Western Front's iconic moonscape ahead. They're not going to send us out into that open field, are they? Says Jim, to which Slim very cleverly replies, sure, we're going to keep going till we can't go no farther. The character yeah. Slim's dim-witted bravery in this moment expresses the same level of insight as the strategic doctrine of the high command for much of the war. <laughs> it is a more or less accurate representation of the orders given to the American expeditionary forces in the Meuse-Argonne offensive. At this very moment, there is a chemical attack and the soldiers don their gas masks as they advance into the wasteland. So my point here is basically like, this is the way that we remember the war, like the blasted landscape, put on your gas masks, go in, it's gonna be a new world, a different world, like the surface of the moon, you know? And also basically your orders are gonna be, go, go forth and die, you know? And Slim is like, in the longer version of this, I begin to think that like Slim is the perfect iconic hero of this era, that you need this just like straight up worker who's dumb enough to just do what you say, who's willing to just march into enemy fire. And yeah. basically his attitude is, I know I'm going to die. He even ends up quoting this line that ends up being in uh, Marine Corps lore from the Battle of Bella Wood. You don't want to live forever, do you? He wakes up halfway through the battle after he's catching some Z's in his shell hole. He says, am I dead yet? <laughs> right. Like his objective is like, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do it because I don't want to stick around for what happens later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? It can't get better. 
he's the perfect hero uh, for this era and for this war. And in a bizarre way, this movie twists him from this comic figure to something that's, I don't know, he's a heroic sacrifice. listening to Professor Frank Michile and research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homley. I'm editor Madeline McCabe. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Special Projects. The music for this episode today was Servants of Death, recorded by the band Refuse for their album Freedom, and as always, Last Century Promise, recorded by the International Noise Conspiracy for their album A New Morning, Changing Weather. We'll see you next time. Cause the sign of a trickle